I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. What's a commitment worth? Especially one that aims to go carbon neutral decades from now, in 2050 to be exact. Because that's what Maersk, the world's largest maritime shipping company, announced this past December at COP24. And I know what you're probably thinking. Just how ambitious can 2050 really be? Well, there's a catch. The technology doesn't exist today. And even when we develop it, it'll have to be commercially available. And that's not all. The average age of a cargo ship is 20 to 25 years, which means carbon-neutral cargo vessels need to launch by 2030 to hit that commitment by 2050. In other words, there is a lot of heavy lifting to do in the next 11 years. That's the kind of complexity required to address the international shipping industry. To call shipping important in the context of global trade is an understatement, really. Shipping carries 80% of trade. Think food, all kinds of goods and materials around the world. But all that trade flow comes at a cost. Shipping may be the least environmentally damaging form of commercial transport, but it still accounts for almost 3% of global carbon emissions. Yeah, and sure, we often talk about efficiency gains, and those have certainly happened. In fact, Maersk has led the industry by cutting emissions per container by almost half. But it's not enough, which is what Maersk realized, since efficiency gains only cap emissions at current levels. So here to talk about why Maersk is making this commitment and what it's going to take to meet it is John Cornerup-Bang. John is head of sustainability and climate strategy at Maersk. With 20 years of experience working on sustainable globalization, he oversees the development of sustainability as well as work on solving larger systemic issues related to global logistics. For the past three years, John has served as advisor to Ban Ki-moon's high-level advisory group on sustainable transportation and its linkage to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Welcome to the show, John. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Look, so I want to start out with your background. You've got a pretty interesting one in terms of coming from an NGO and looking at the complexity and sustainability of, of global transportation and now bringing that to Maersk. Talk about that for a second. Yes, I, I think I have a, an unusual background if you look at the profiles that's in our company. I mean, already from the educational point of view, I have a master in political science, but I actually also have uh, studied philosophy. So, so I have this broad perspective on understanding complex issues that I've brought with me. I've been on sustainable development for my entire career. I started out actually working uh, within the UN system on poverty reduction and agricultural development. But then I had a long career in WWF, international work on sustainable globalization, especially focusing on companies, not in the traditional way as, as uh, polluters, but looking at companies as potential solution providers. The fundamental idea that I've always worked on have been that we have a lot of solution out there for sustainability, but what we don't have is scale. So we need scale, and the mechanism to scale is really profit because you create the capital you need for reinvestments. And that, I think, took me um, to Maersk. Um, Maersk reached out to me, actually, because Maersk wanted to uh, understand itself much better from a broader perspective, insert the transport sector in the wider sustainable development context. And for the last 10 years, I've been driving our sustainability priorities, especially our work on climate change. Great. So let's jump into that. So first... 
Give us some context, maybe paint the scene in terms of why is climate change so important, so critical, being a factor for global transportation? Well, first of all, because global transportation and not the least shipping uh, that we're in, we operate more than 700 uh, container vessels uh, worldwide, uh, is a major consumer of fossil fuel and therefore a major emitter. So we're a carbon-intensive industry. And given the prominence of climate change, given the risks that the global economy and the global society runs if we do not manage to mitigate climate change, it's a strategic driver for innovation in the shipping industry. Hmm. Why specifically is it important for Maersk, would you say? Well, I think that if we look at the container shipping landscape, I think everybody would agree that we are the or at least one of the one of two premium brands we've always been focusing on high quality We have a lot of big consumer brands as customers that are expecting us to be on the forefront of responsible business conduct, but also solutions to some of the bigger problems. And we started this journey more than 10 years ago and been a leader in reducing CO2. We have reduced 47% per container moved by the end of last year on a 2007 baseline. And now we just announced a new goal that really represents a gear shift in our climate change work. Why do you think Maersk has been able to reduce that emissions per container much more so than the rest of the industry? What's been the differentiator there? Well, I think this is an interesting history because it's actually a history about the interaction between society and a company. Because in 2009, we had the climate change summit, the COP15 in Copenhagen, Mm -hmm. which is our home. City. I, I remember being there yes. and leaving very disappointed. Yes, it, it was it. a disappointing <laughs> meeting, uh, although that yeah. the threshold for two yeah. degrees was actually yeah. agreed there. But anyway, uh, in the run-up to that, uh, there was a, a series of articles, even front pages, that was pointing to the fact that Maersk emitted as much CO2 as the entire uh, nation of Denmark. And being a family-controlled company founded on strong values to give back to society, that actually led uh, to the first awareness and the first strategy to start to reduce emissions. And what then became apparent is, of course, how much money you can save also if you reduce emissions. And it also became apparent that it plays into one of our strengths is that from a technical and engineering point of view, we've always been a leader. So we geared up our engineering team with hundreds of engineers to look for savings, to look for optimization of the network, talk with the shipbuilding yards to design the ships differently that we would order. And that has enabled us to be an industry leader on efficiency for the last 10 years. Mm. Maybe if you sort of pulled back a little bit, why has addressing climate change and emissions been much more complex, frankly, more problematic for transnational businesses like transportation, um, aviation, as well as shipping? Well, first of all, I I think I I would like to challenge a little bit if the difference is that big, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there are sectors that are nationally founded, such as agriculture, that, you know, I don't think you can say that agriculture is, is further ahead compared to shipping and aviation. But having said that, the dynamics are very different. Because if you look at any sector and any leadership that you find within the UNFCCC negotiations, you would always see that you have leading countries and lacking countries. And when you're in national industries, to a large extent, you can allow for industries in certain nations to move forward. But when you have a global industry like the shipping industry where you overnight you can change the flag of your ship, 
you have the headquarter in a certain place, but mm. you, you might have your assets somewhere else. The only way that you can avoid that any additional cost will not immediately translate into a disadvantage competitive-wise is through global regulation. And there you need every nation to move at the same time, which is very difficult. And I think that's also what we saw if we look at it from the other sectors. Think about the difference between the dilution after COP15 in Copenhagen and then the success in Paris. So was it just 10 years or, or something like that later? No, the approach has changed. Because the approach on the negotiations in Copenhagen was to have a legally binding agreement with all nations that failed. That's what shipping faced as a challenge in the IMO, the, the International Maritime Organization. Mm -hmm. The success in Paris was also based on the fact that the treaty is legally binding, but the efforts are not. It's a voluntary bottom-up process. And that you can do that on land, but you can't do that on the oceans. Mm. I want to go back to the way you described the family recognizing emissions as a problem during COP15 in Copenhagen. If you had to sort of trace a line between COP15 to COP24, where you've just announced uh, a very ambitious net zero uh, by 2050 target, um, talk about how that transpired. I guess I'm, I'm really interested in, in terms of how firms change or the theory of change within firms around climate? Well, so this is a continuation of our journey that I just talked about before. External pressure, criticism, internal values started the journey. A strong link to cost effectiveness scaled it up with efficiency work. Then five to six years ago, we started to bring this into the commercial space. So can we get commercial drivers with our customers to do even more? That, that proved very difficult. At that time, there was also no real pressure from the capital markets. So for some years, we were looking for drivers that we could use to make a step change, to go further than the efficiency goal. We also did not have a regulatory pressure because you did not have an agreement uh, in the IMO, as I talked about before, on CO2. But then actually around the Paris Agreement and just the years after, all these things converged into, into one direction driver. You had on the investor side, the CA, Climate Action 100 Plus network formed and a very different and very present pressure on us to go beyond efficiency work and think longer term. At the same time, and as a follow-up of Paris, the IMO actually agreed a 2050 target for the shipping industry on, on reduction in CO2. And least but not last, the customers started to set very aggressive targets for their supply chains. They started to go from like, for example, a 50% reduction to zero for their supply chains. Of course, their footprint in their supply chains is the production is the biggest. So when they had 50%, it was not very interesting for them to reduce transport. Because when you transport by ocean, it's a very efficient, so per pursue you move if you're Nike there's almost no CO2 in that but when you go to zero you have to address all sectors so all that converged and then we started to look uh, long term and then I think the IPCC report 1.5 degrees that came played a role as well it's a clear message that the economy which we thrive from the global economy is really threatened maybe even at two degrees so we need to go further so we started to map scenarios for arriving at zero in 2050 and what you immediately understand when you do that, when you're into shipping where our assets, our ships, they sail for 20, 25 years, 
And we have seen what we have done on efficiency. 46% per container move in 10 years. But still, the absolute emission curve is flat. Mm. It's not going down. So the conclusion we had to draw was that efficiency will only, let's say, absorb or neutralize our growth. It will never take us towards zero. So the conclusion there is, of course, a conclusion with a lot of, of radical perspective in because it means that the current technology that propels shipping has to be not made more efficient, but completely changed. Mm. So 20, 25 years long asset cycles, you have to get the whole fleet in zero by 2050. What does that mean? Is that, lo- that seems far, far away, but it's not. You need to have then the first zero carbon vessel on the waters on a commercial viable basis in 2030. That's 11 years from now. So what we really found out is that we need to mobilize the market, the shipbuilders, the engine manufacturers, the fuel uh, industry, the finance industry in terms of, of, of finance to make radical innovation and accelerated innovation happen throughout the next 10 years. Otherwise, we cannot even make it for 50. And that's why we went out now. We don't know how to get there. Mm. We always knew how to get there on the efficiency. It's our own engineers. They know how to run our engines. But for this target, it's a a gear shift for us also mentally and culturally because we don't know how to do it. The only thing we know is that we need to start now. We need to get a solution on the waters in 11 years' time. And the third thing that we do know is that we cannot do it alone. We are dependent on everybody in the ecosystem. And actually, people think about this big challenge of of getting zero-carbon fuels or technologies on the vessels to work, to get the energy density. Big challenge. But actually, I don't think it's even the biggest challenge because then you need to build an industrial base on land that can supply whatever whatever fuel or whatever energy carrier you need. It's a massive uh, challenge. So... For us, this announcement is also a call to action. Mm. And we aim to mobilize resources within manufacturers and the fuel industry that focus on the zero carbon technologies. It sounds like a pretty big step change predicated on a lot of radical technological innovation that hasn't yet really been commercially developed, right? Mm. I mean, can you give us some sense of what needs to be there? Is it obviously batteries, right? What kind of technology are you thinking about or looking at um, that can get us a big part of the way there? Well, the approach we take, so our conclusion is it's impossible to, to know which one will win here. I think that one of the things that might be more certain is that if you look at the global fleet, it's not going to be one solution. It's going to be a mix of solutions. And that's already a big change for shipping because everybody sailed in the same bunker now. And then um, before that, everybody went on steam and coal. Before that, everybody on sail. Now we're looking into a world where, where the shipping industry is propelled by many different sources of energy. And therefore, the supply chain for shipping will change a lot. So that's very different. We will have four to five, maybe six years now, where we would, we would look into all the possible technical solutions. So you, you mentioned batteries, hydrogen, mm-hmm. uh, methanol, uh, bio, different types of biofuels, uh, synthetic fuels. Uh, we, we will look into all of them. And then in the towards the mid-20s, we would need to start to pick the ones that we will then develop commercially and we will start to design ships and engines in the late 20s 
to have the first underwater in 2030. But for now, it's really the, the broad approach. I mean, we want to work on as an advance together with others, and we want others, big research programs, to work on the entire portfolio of possible fuels. I want to come back to the Climate Action 100 that you talked about. You know, it's clear that looking over the last 10 to 20 years, the nature of engagement, even the the question of divestment is sort of changing. I think there's a recognition that if investors divest, they really sort of lose a seat in terms of helping constructively redirect uh, the direction of that company. Describe that kind of engagement that you've had with the Climate Action 100. I've seen letters from MP Pension, for instance, uh, that really talk about the effort that they've made and the constructive dialogue culminating in this net zero commitment. Talk about some of the other things in that uh, dialogue. Yeah, so I think that the investment community's approach to climate change completely changed around Paris. I think it was a big wake-up call for the, for the finance sector. All of a sudden, you, you started to see some of the biggest asset managers in the world some of uh, and treasury people really starting to understand this as a major risk and and a risk with two tails. It's, it's almost a lose-lose because the transition risk for the investment portfolio that follows a radical decarbonization is enormous due to stranded assets and, 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 and the value of the assets that they're invested in. But then on the other hand, if you don't do that, then you have physical climate change that's going to destabilize the economy. So that I, I think that they woke up to that around the Paris summit. And since then, we have had actually a very active um, investment uh, community around our stock, lots of dialogue, and especially the CA 100 Plus, where MP Pension in Denmark is the key account manager for our stock. I meet with them regularly, quarterly. Um, they have been at our annual General Assembly for the last two years. They have been wanting to know how we, uh, how we, uh, where we're going on carbon intensity, but they also put the question out about the longer term. How is our business model resilient to a two-degree trajectory. Now it's going to be a 1.5-degree trajectory. They also, with the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Change-Related Financial Disclosure, is starting more and more to look at the the impact of physical climate change, which we have also started work on. Hmm. When you think about these reporting frameworks, you just mentioned a few, um, principally TCFD, which uh, there's a lot of optimism around. Um, But there are a lot of others. We've seen many emerge over the last decade. Um, The UN SDGs most recently, but the Just Transition, the UN Global Compact. As an investor, it can feel sometimes incredibly overwhelming uh, just to have so many of these. And it's sort of a struggle sometimes trying to figure out how to prioritize. Clearly, TCFD is one of the top priorities. How is a corporate, particularly coming from Maersk, how do you make sense of all of these frameworks and how do you prioritize or, or kind of focus on the ones that, that are most important, most material? Well, I can agree with you that also <laughs> from this side of the table, it seems overwhelming and honestly quite difficult to grasp. I think the TCFD has found a lot of consensus. So I think that uh, Bloomberg Marcani really made a good job out of collecting from some of the frameworks that are already there, but then adding um, substantial focus on the physical, the risk from physical climate change. 
Um, I've been in some working groups also with uh, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, a couple of other big asset managers to try to then find out actually how to operationalize these mm. guidelines. So that's difficult in itself. Mm-hmm. Well, what we try to do is to avoid reporting for the sake of reporting. So the way I approach this is always to insert, I mean, the substance that you would eventually report on I don't start with thinking about reporting. I start with thinking about risk management. There's also something about opportunity, but more than anything, it's about risk management, long-term, short-term. And that makes sense in a specific context of a company uh, holding the assets that hold, having the business model that you have, and then try to fit that into the reporting frameworks. Then uh, if it talks about the ratings, I try to talk to our investors, the most important investors, and ask them, which one do you use? Um, and then we, we do a couple of them, Sustainalytic MSCI, and that's what we focus on. Uh, it seems to be the most recurrent in our investment, the, the larger investors that are in, in, with us for the longer term. But I also try always to get into a dialogue with the investors that is open enough uh, to understand not only about which one do they use, but how do they use them. Mm. And I do think that there is a tendency now that a lot of asset managers are really starting to see climate change, but also sustainability issues broader as, as a real proxy for risk management. And, and I think it's, it's putting a pressure on the, on the ratings because the quality is not good enough. You get these tick box information and some of it is wrong uh, when we look at it. It's also, I think, a very thin margin industry. So the quality is what you have. And you see more and more of the asset managers um, starting to build up in-house capacity, actually, to, to deal with these issues, which I find interesting because then they start to really think about what does this mean for risk management. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, if you were to offer a critique or send a message to the finance industry, and again, at large, owners, managers, everyone, what would it be in terms of focusing on metrics or, again, building in-house capabilities? Um, What would be most useful in understanding climate risk from a corporate perspective? Yeah, so I I think... In continuation of what I just said is to rely much less on the rating uh, agencies uh, because I, d- I don't think that that standardized, rather tick box-like exercise gives much input to value creation, really, hmm. or protection of value. So it would be to build in-house capacity to actually work on this from a risk management point of view and to, when doing that, have a, an open dialogue with with the corporate sector, because risk management is always specific to an asset base, specific to market, specific to a business model. I wanted to end off with one question, principally for a lot of the students that listen to this. And a question that I always hear from them is, I'm interested in sustainability or responsible investment, but how do I get into it? Do I go conventionally through finance or through an NGO like like you have? Um, what advice would you give them in terms of pursuing you know that passion? Well, I mean, the fundamental advice is to not think too tactically. Is really to follow the, that passion. Also, in terms of what what's your entry point? I mean, I started on the NGO side. Uh, went into to something that was close to 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 standards and operation. I'm moving more and more into the finance side, and I'm taking some courses and stuff to to build up my theoretical knowledge. And that you can always do that. So follow that, and then 
Sustainability, when you work on that, is a discipline where you always have a complex and a broader picture. So you have some of the classic disciplines, you know, the legal department would, would take a very narrow approach to a problem and, and you get a legal opinion about whether you can be incriminated on something. But then that's, that's a flashpoint in time. But then you start to have the fact that even rulings change over time as a reflection of how the opinion is in society and they should. Then you have the reputational part of this and then you have the possibility to build alliances with some of the stakeholders that influence even the way that's talked about. That's the way you work from a sustainability point of view. And you only get those competences if you, during your education, I would say try to do something, a course, or write on a topic that is outside your own core discipline. I, I, I was on four faculties when I studied, and you don't need necessarily to run that much around, but I'd say try to be a little bit more multidisciplinary than the ones that want to go into the core functions. On sustainability, your, your ability to combine between disciplines is your strongest asset. Got it. That's great. Look, it's been fascinating to learn about how Maersk, the world's largest shipping company, is addressing climate change in an ambitious plan to go carbon neutral by 2050. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with John Cornerup-Bang, who's head of sustainability strategy and chief advisor on climate change at Maersk. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future. I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks. You're welcome. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes. <laughs>